Welcome to WMRE's Common Area Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by the award-winning editorial staff at WMRE. Let's jump right into this week's podcast. Hello and welcome to The Common Area with your host, David Bodemer. David, how are you today? I am I'm doing well. We're getting some nice summer weather here in, in New York City. Um, things are springing back to life so it's it's uh, it's a uh, it's nice it's i don't know it's it's definitely been a long long road to get here how are things in your neck of the woods uh, hot hot <laughs> hot and miserable <laughs> one of these days david I, we've never talked about this but i've never been to new york and one of these oh, days really? i'm just going to show up at your doorstep and just ask you for a tour so just uh, yeah I'm, I'm warning you now absolutely yeah i mean <laughs> i mean we've been actually recording this for a while and you know we've never we've only ever met um via zoom yeah just just on zoom and uh speaking of being on zoom we have two people with us you have two guests on the show today that's right i have with us chad buke and george kutro uh, who are both with jll i'm gonna let them give us a little more background on both of them before we dive in but we're gonna be talking about industrial real estate both some regional and national trends and some things that i think we've not touched on before so i'm looking forward to to, to hearing what they have to say so uh, chad and george welcome to the podcast Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks, David. We're glad to be here. Yeah, George and I are based in Chicago with JLL, and we actually host our own podcast called Chicago Industrial Real Time. And uh, excited to uh, team up with you and and give uh, our wider audience a little bit of rundown of uh, some of the industrial property subtypes. Yeah, I mean I, that that's that, that that that's pretty much what I wanted to kind of dive in on because. I think as is no surprise to anyone, industrial real estate's been hot for a while, for, for several years now, it's been right up there um, or ahead of multifamily when you kind of like, for, when you ask investors what their top real estate property type is. So that's, that's there's nothing new about that, but it does seem that there were some dynamics that the pandemic has accelerated that seem to be continuing forward. And particularly with some of these, and um, segments that people may not think about as much within the industrial world, like cold storage and some of these other hubs. So I don't know how, you know, just kind of like ready to hear however you want to go in terms of like, you know, giving us some rundowns on some of these things. And then I can kind of come back at you with some follow-ups, but um, that that's what I was thinking. But David, that's, that's great, but let's take a step back and because you're, we're new to your audience. So let, let us give us our sure or your audience, a background on us a little bit. Again, my name is uh, George Cutro. I've been in the industry on the research side of things for the industrial group over 30 years. I cut my teeth at Cushman and Wakefield and worked there for nine years, moved over to Collier's and had a very strong career, almost 20 years there, and joined up with JLL about five years ago doing the same stuff, uh, working on industrial real estate tracking trends, vacancies, absorption, and uh, lease and sale comps and trying to provide that data for our brokers to help them uh, grab more clients. Chad? Hi, this is Chad Book, and I've been with JLL about nine years on the industrial research team, and uh, we're based in Chicago, which is the firm's uh, global headquarters, and uh, we're part of the uh, industrial brokerage team, which is one of JLL's largest and most productive teams. Uh, we work ar around the, the greater Chicago tri-state market, about a billion, 1.2 billion square feet of inventory here. And we also work closely with our 
capital markets team. We have a property management group and a, a, a construction management group. So we touch a lot of different aspects and transactions, working with both occupiers and investors. Um, and, and a lot of our guys on the team work uh, both regionally and nationally with clients. Um, so we have a little bit of exposure to some of the other markets as well as working closely with our, our national research group. Again, with our, our quarterly deliverables, which uh, some of you guys have seen, as well as uh, some some white papers on various uh, topics. And we'll, in, in the episode notes, we're going to have links to your bios and, and more information for people that wants wants that. And we can um, mention that at the end as well. But then, you know, back to then the the question that I raised, which was, or you know, we talked about some of what you're seeing in terms of some of these types of the industrial world that maybe people haven't paid that much attention to previously. Well, you, David, you mentioned earlier in our conversation about industrial being one of the strongest asset classes for real estate. And we have been that way since call it 2014. We've seen a flood of cash come into the market. And majority of that at the time was being spent on big box or warehouse distribution product. And over the past call it 18 months, we've seen um, cash being allocated to specialty types assets within that industrial group. And two of them that we really want to focus on today, which are the biggest trends, are cold storage and what we, consider, we call IPS or industrial service properties. So Chad, why don't you give us a definition of both? Sure. Cold storage is temperature controlled. Um, you know, we're usually talking about refrigerated space could range anywhere from call it 30 degrees to 50 degrees um, on the high end, all the way down into the negative 10 to 20 <laughs> below zero. Uh, these are large mechanical chiller systems and, and generators to um, you know, keep the temperatures pretty precise and humidity and that sort of thing. And uh, those, are, those are distribution buildings, uh, st- storing things like uh, food products, uh, food, um, food and beverage, dairy, even pharmaceutical type stuff. Um, and that is used either finished goods or uh, raw materials for food manufacturers, or it could be frozen ice cream, frozen pizzas, dairy, um, you name it. Those are the types of things within the cold storage sector. And um, the other asset we're going to speak to is we're called JLO is calling them ISF properties, industrial service facilities. And some of those could range from truck terminals, which are a warehouse and distribution building, very skinny, focused on. Um, you know, product coming in and out, truck to truck, a handoff, not really long-term storage. Um, and also kind of within that space, we, we, we refer to um, more transportation-related properties such as uh, trailer yards, container storage yards, fleet service depots, um, truck repair, truck maintenance. Some of those are all kind of generally related to the, the cross dock or, or truck terminal sector. And what's interesting, Chad mentioned on all those those different lines that fit into that ISP product, they all have one thing in common and it's all ground yard space area. Typically these buildings will sit on a huge concrete pad, which allows them to store raw materials or vehicles on them. They'll be fully fenced and secured. They'll be well lit. And in some cases, if there's multiple users on the site, they'll be subdivided for each individual user. And these properties are not really located in Maine and Maine because of the traffic they create. And 
in some cases you don't want to see right. someone stacking right. seven tall containers in your residential area. So they, they really are zoning specific and there are only certain areas where these will pop up because of the negative aspect of what, how they look to the community, but they're very vital to trucking and the warehouse industry today. And we're seeing a lot of them sp um, spring up more construction because of demand. Yeah, these are absolutely essential businesses, uh, but pre-COVID and even more so now, uh, every, everything moves by truck, whether it's the groceries you got or the thing you ordered uh, from, from an internet retailer to, you know, wh where are these delivery vans parking and where is this, where are these refrigerated groceries being stored when they, you know, leave a, a food production facility. So uh, everything we do and touch um, is, is generally speaking could be coming through one or two or, or multiple of these type facilities. And the pandemic really has accentuated the demand for these products. As more people were shopping from home and wanting deliveries to their home, that's just created more demand for these type of facilities because there's more trucks in the road, and which is creating this demand. And typically the type of owner that would own these buildings on the institutional side would be private equity folks or small mom and pop investors. And the reason the, the big institutionals weren't going after these is because they were the small, small portion of the environment. Like Chad mentioned earlier, about 1% of these buildings in our marketplace are cold storage and ISP properties. So really there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of volume to buy, but because of the demand and the pricing of these assets, you're seeing, and the competition for just general big box warehouse, you're seeing a lot more institutions starting to invest in these specialty type products, uh, taking that risk, uh, and it's all tied to demand because there's demand, so the risk is lower. Lower, and, and in, traditionally in the past, these types of facilities, once they became vacant, sometimes it took them a while to fill them, depending on the quality of the asset and where it was located, in terms of the market it was in. From uh, obviously, we work in a real estate brokerage group, and we work with investors and tenants. And so, again, the the inventory pool is small, and hence the data points are a little bit fewer and harder to come by. So, um, you know, if we were talking about lease comps for for gen generic warehouse space, we'd have a long list. Um, but when you're talking about you know comping and valuing out a cold storage building or a truck terminal, that list is much shorter, um, and that information is 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 more valuable. But also um, again, the, the investment base does not always have as many data points to, to point to uh, on these types of transactions. Um, but that being said, the per square foot numbers are much, much higher than generic ambient warehouse space or just generic um, industrial or manufacturing space. So that's an important consideration. Um, the, these buildings, um, you really kind of have to have to look at it. And it's not always an apples to apples comparison. I mean, even for example, with truck terminals, the pricing is on what's called a per dock door basis. The per square foot number is a little bit less, a little bit of a misnomer when you're valuing these things. And, and with cold storage, for example, you may be valuing these or um, surveying the market and looking at the number of pallet positions available within a building because that's how an occupier would, would really use it, looking at the cubic capacity, as well as the temperature and, and, the, and the typical square footage. But those are the types of metrics that 
the specialists in these uh, sectors are are looking at to value and 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 survey these buildings with. I wanted to ask a little bit about the the truck terminal that side first, and because yeah, it did strike me as you're talking about these facilities that you can't just put these anywhere. So. What are some of the characteristics of the sites and are and are these popping up in markets across the country or are they certain markets where you're seeing more of these type of facilities being done? Sure, I guess we can start with some of the characteristics of the building. So uh, this is generally you could refer to as a, a lower coverage building uh, relative to the site. Um, so yeah, why don't you explain it to sure. the audience? So for example, it, it, with more generic buildings, you may call it, um, your typical warehouse building could be a cross dock. It could have you know, generous employee and trailer parking. And that building could cover 50% of the site or 40% of the site. Those are some types of rules of thumb, including detention and roadway and setbacks and those, those types of things. But with a truck terminal facility, the coverage of the building relative to the size of the, the lot or the site is much, much lower. It could be maybe 10%. Um, so very uh, so meaning if you have a 10,000 square foot truck terminal, it's going to be sitting on 10 acres versus a 100,000 square foot industrial building that will be sitting on roughly five acres. And uh, again, the land coverage is the key because you're storing uh, for truck terminals, it's trailers and cabs and then employee parking. And for an, for an industrial building, it's, it's maybe trailer storage but the majority of its land is set aside for uh, employee parking. Go ahead, Chad. Yeah, those, that's exactly covers it. And again, yeah, the, the parking and, and circulation for trucks to be able to maneuver around the building and store, store trailers on, on really all three or four sides of the entire site, fenced. There may be a, a fuel station on the site. There could be a truck repair or kind of maintenance building on the on a corner of the site. Um, and then you're kind of segregating employee parking from the trailer parking just for safety and, and to, to enable the trucks and trailers to have full maneuverability. Because we're talking about a 53 foot trailer that needs a lot of space to, to make a wide turning radius around that building. And then again, you could be parking, you know, 10, 20, 100 something plus trailers depending on the type of occupier and the type of type and size of the site. Uh, and, these, and these sites will be, like Chad said, they'll be fully secured, full fence. Sometimes they'll have automated systems to allow you to go into the fence. They'll be uh, well lit. And majority of these will be concrete land. Some will be gravel on the lower end of the scale, but the majority of these will be, con it'll be a concrete jungle for the you know, 90% of the coverage is concrete. Another thing to point out, I think a lot of the audience is familiar with, with warehouse buildings as a storage and fulfillment and processing facility. These truck terminals are, are really not a storage depot. Product is not put on racks and set aside for days and months at a time to be fulfilled and distributed. Product comes in, it could go right across the building on a forklift and, and right out within an hour, or maybe maybe it sits in there overnight or the next day, but it's, it is not a long-term storage depot. It's a uh, product moves in and out and is, is transloaded or handed off. And the key word there, Chad, is transload. And that's just taking goods in one form of container, repackaging them and putting them into another form of container to go to its end user. 
And that's why these, that's what these facilities do. They'll come in. Uh, for example, I just bought a, a grill. I, I gave myself a Father's Day gift. And uh, one of the freight haulers uh, took it from the, the manufacturer. And I just got a, a note the other day saying that it will be in the at freight hubs terminal today with a bunch of other goods that were coming from that same area. And then from there, they'll repackage it onto another truck and deliver it right to my house. So it kind of gives you a gist of, of that truck terminal type facility and how goods flow from it. So that could have come in on a, a full truckload, a 53 foot trailer from the manufacturer's grill plant. Which was in Atlanta. Okay. And then from that cross dock, it, it was unloaded off the big trailer and then maybe put aside and sent out to George's home on a smaller box truck because that big truck is not maneuvering into his neighborhood. But that little box truck is making various deliveries around the northwest suburbs where George lives. And it's and it's very it's very it's similar to your parcel. It's, it's a parcel care, carrier situation. The two biggest firms, UPS and FedEx, you know, do a great job of that. And uh, they really have set up that truck terminal uh, business because of the goods they're getting and then repackaging and bring it to the end user. So again, is this kind of thing like in every market or are these just more in some of the major industrial hub markets, you know, are you going to find these outside of every city in the country? What, what, what are, cause again, just given you're talking about the land constraint, the, the need for land and whatnot, I'm just wondering, you know, where you find these, like in New York, if I wanted to see where these are, where are they? That kind of thing. Well, it's safe to say that there are truck terminals in, in every major market. And, and there's also an important, uh, it's important to note that they're also in rural markets as well, uh, whether that's a small town or at a key interstate junction, maybe in, in the middle of the country, just depending on the market and the size of, uh, size of the market and the population, these facilities would have different functions. I mean, there could be some in, in Northern New Jersey handling you know, transloading imports from, from the ports, or there could be one in rural Indiana where it's uh, trucks moving uh, across the Midwest uh, meet and hand off their product and um, go back on to their, to their final destinations. But it, it really kind of depends on, um, you know, the, the type of occupier and the type well, the of, type uh, of user that's asking them because they have clients who are asking to, to move their goods for them. It's other warehousers, it's manufacturers, it's retailers who don't have their own shipping arm, and they're using these third-party vendors to pick those goods up. And again, it, to your point, David, it's across the country. These, these are not just located in Maine and Maine. They're located across the country. And the key to their locations is being close enough to a, a major node of population. And they, and again, the, the, one of the key things for them is called truck turns, meaning how many times they can get to and from the port, or in this case, the terminal, with a truckload. So they don't want to be too, too far away because if you're only dri driving things one way, one way back and forth once a day, it's a waste of money and energy. So you want to have these, these are located where they could do multiple turns and they can service a large percentage of the area from that location. Now, on the uh, the other tech that you talk about, cold storage, um, I saw an interesting um, chart today. I, I don't remember the source now off the top of my head, but it showed that um, that on some categories where there were spikes of demand for online and 
those have kind of come down a little bit more as people have returned to doing some more in-person shopping. The demand for our, like grocery um, like d- delivery has not subsided at all, even as like we are kind of reopening things up. So it seems like a lot of people like tried to do, you know, tried to some of these services for, for grocery delivery during the pandemic and are continuing to do it. And we've now, and in New York, like there are these two, these services that have suddenly popped up that are doing like 15 minute grocery delivery. Um, and I guess they just have kind of micro little f- fulfillment centers that are sprinkled all throughout the city where they can, you put an order in and then a guy like runs through, runs through this thing. And then 15 minutes later, he's at your house, which is kind of crazy. Cause like the whole foods and fresh directs and all that stuff has been here for a while, but that stuff's usually, you know, a couple a day in advance, two or three days in advance. Now these like super fast fulfillment. And so I'm just like, this is very long winded, but I'm like th- that clearly seems to be part of this cult like what were so things like this driving the demand for cold storage because all of these fulfillment centers that are delivering these fresh stuff locally something's got to be feeding them from the, the this distribution distribution network that's happening nationally also like i feel like you can now get ice cream delivered from across the country and it come and crazy you know drop to your door and it's you know, and it's, and it's in perfect condition. So all this kind of stuff that like, I never really would have thought about pre pandemic that was, is really cool. And it seems to be now just even accelerating. So I'm guessing that's, this is part of the stuff that's like drive helping to drive. And then that's, so the question is like, how do you, how is the industry responding to this demand for these kind of, you know, c- consumers are into this and buying all the stuff and continuing to do these services. So now that's creating this demand for the sector. So how is that now? Like, you know, being fulfilled. Yeah, David, that's a great point. You, you touched on a couple different aspects that are driving the demand for this. And so uh, maybe I'll, I'll recap, you know, you mentioned some of these, these niche products, like you know, these niche ice cream manufacturers or these niche specialty foods. Um, there's, there's a lot of these meal kit right. producing companies that can send the ingredients to you and you can whip them up at home. Um, and then obviously the online grocery um, and, and some of that is some of that space is, is for pure online grocery distribution, but also the grocery retailers during the pandemic when when people are staying home and cooking at home and not dining out. We all went to the grocery store more often because we that was our only kind of thing to do to get our food um, or and then there is obviously the, the restaurant supplier angle, mm, uh, the food right. service distribution angle within the cold storage space. But those kind of four drivers of the of the sector have all been extremely active and growing uh, especially that kind of that that meal kit sector or that that food delivery sector of, of the prepared stuff I mean that's another subsector that has grown that ghost kitchen yeah the ghost kitchen uh, phenomenon and and, and, and uh, so they're supplying a lot of these uh, food these f- food to go scenarios and, you know, sadly, some, some restaurants couldn't pivot to this environment. However, others could, and they use this ghost kitchen environment to help keep their employees employed and created, you know, an, another subsector of the Uberism of transportation. So now you've got the people who are supplying that service are now not just only carrying people, they're carrying food. And it's just sprung up a whole new industry, which was growing the past five years, Chad, would you say the mm-hmm. Ubers of the world were, were coming in our marketplace, has expanded that industry into carrying other things. 
And you're also seeing the 3PL and the transportation groups also leverage these folks because this crowdsourcing media of people, they can utilize them to get these goods to the end user so much quicker uh, versus the past where caught 10 years ago, you wanted something ordered online, you were getting it within a week. And you mentioned earlier, David, that you're getting something in three hours. So it just tells you how quickly the transportation has sped up to get goods from the con- from the manufacturer or the maker to the consumer. Some of these stories, is it not even three hours? Now it's 15 minutes. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but again, it's, it's, it's because it, this is, it sprung a new industry and it allows uh, people to get things faster. Uh, the, the one thing to be, th- to be cautious of is right now the cost is not so bad, you know, for what you're paying for the right. service. But there's going to come a point in time where it's going to become part of the norm versus uh, want or desire to have. And if, then the price point is going to change. And will that box people out of the market because it becomes too costly? So these are so we got these trends going. So then on the um, equity side of the equation, you mentioned so, you know, that there are perhaps more kinds of investors that are interested in industrial and looking at and, and not just looking at then the traditional um, big box distribution centers, but actually interested in this kind of thing. Can you, can you give some color there in terms of like the, the, the type of investors? Cause like, I don't think historically industrial, but historically you think of like the REITs and like the prologuses of the world, like being the big, you know, industrial players. Are there other kinds of, you know, capital? Are there just like random retail investors who are interested? And if so, like, are there ways for them to access this market and to, to invest in some of these new kinds of property types? Yeah, I think there's a, a lot to, to answer with that one. And so I think maybe generally speaking that more of the players in this, both the transportation truck terminal facility sector. Um, niche markets. Yeah, these niche markets, most of the players in here are, are not the biggest global investors, the oh, Prologis of the world. While, while Prologis does own some of these, um, that's probably not their main focus. And so, you know, looking back five or 10 years, the, in the past, probably the, the only players in this sector or some of the, the, the most active players in this sector were these smaller investment groups that owned a handful of the build of these types of assets. They really focused on the sector. They understood it. And uh, it's obviously become more mainstream. And so larger equity funds, larger, uh, again, new, new to the asset class investors have allocated sole funds towards these sectors. And, and I think it's really important to point out that um, as the sector matures, we're now seeing speculative developments for both of these types of properties. Again, only a handful around the country, kind of in the primary markets, but that was something that we just really did not see in the past. And so that just kind of shows you how the demand from both the occupiers and the capital markets has, has matured yeah, uh, for these. That's interesting. And it tells you about the, the depth and the demand for that product type, because traditionally uh, both cold storage and industrial service properties were a built to suit or built to own type facility. Uh, developers were not gonna take the development risk back in the day to build this on a speculative nature because of the fact there's very, was very little demand for this product type. But fast forward to 2021, 
and the, this demand is increased tremendously and more developers and institutional money that never were looked at this asset class to buy are now saying we should get into this one because the general stock of product that we're buying today, there's so much competition and, and there's a lot of money being thrown at it that I can make a better return going to these niche industries and, and being the first guy in and, and getting a, a big chunk of this product type as demand is strong. Interesting. And the other, the other issue is these large institutions like to buy in volume and this product type, as we mentioned earlier, there's not a lot of it in comparison to its bulk distribution and manufacturing brethren. Yeah, it's maybe a smaller deal size if you're buying one of these on a one-off basis. Or the old term, uh, arm with rocket, rock, rock chair investor. Armchair investor. Where they, they, you know, they're one-off buying this because they understand it and and they don't, they don't need to buy in volume. And this is a great opportunity for them to invest their, their capital. And then so how, but any, the way that they would learn about the, these, you know, how these work versus the traditional industrial then is just, you know, listening to things like this or, you know, listening to your, your guys' podcast. Coming to JLL and speaking to one of our brokers who can guide them in the, through the yeah. process. A lot, really a lot of this sector was purely owner occupied tenants did not go out and lease these things. They decided I've got to custom build it to my own specifications and I'm going to own it and operate it for 20 plus years. You know, if, if you're, and now as the market has matured, we, we did mention the speculative terminals, but um, it's, it is still hard for users to find either the right cold storage building or the right truck terminal because the inventory base is so small. And again, uh, availability and vacancy is extremely low across the country for these types of things. And so if you're looking, if you're a corporate occupier and you need 100,000 square feet of cold storage space and you're looking around the country, good luck finding, call it 10 options. They're in the class A or B space for you in a primary market. Um, truck terminals, again, good luck. You're, you're probably, truck terminals, are, they're probably not looking for 100,000 square feet. Maybe that, that the average deal size or average user is maybe closer to 50. Um, but again, not not a lot of options for these occupiers around the country. And so investors love that. They say, I can control the market. If I buy a leased asset, I've got a strong likelihood that this tenant is going to stick around and stay. They're not going to move because they can't go find a better option. Um, or, or groups have, have bought sale leasebacks from right. food and beverage producers or uh, trucking logistics companies. Oh, well... I think we, I think I've taken up a good amount of your time and you guys have certainly packed a ton of information in, in here. So I appreciate that. Um, before, just before we kind of wrap things up, I guess two, two quick things. One is if you could just let folks know where they could find out more, how to find you guys, how to find your podcast. And second, if there were like any final points that, or anything that we didn't touch on that you think our audience would benefit from. Yeah, great. Our audience can, can check out the uh, JLL Chicago Industrial Real, Real Time. Our podcast is at uh, chicagorealtime.show. Um, and then JLL has a lot of various research, white papers, articles, quarterly pieces on the uh, trends and insights section of jll.com. 
Um, and obviously feel free to reach out to us and we'd be happy to, to help you out further. And then just one last parting trend, both of these uh, product types that we've talked about and Chad mentioned this earlier, speculative was not, was not in vogue for these product types because of the uniqueness of properties, but we're seeing more and more of these spread up across the country where the uh, main and main developers or institutional money is building these things because of the pent up yeah. demand. And we're going to see that going forward as e-commerce continues to thrive, more of these properties will, will, will come online on a speculative nature. Cool. Well, I want to thank you both for, uh, for coming on the show and it was great to, it was, I learned a lot and was glad that, um, glad that you can make the time for us. Thank you for having us on. David, this is great. Guys, thank you so much for being on the show. David, you brought some, again, some amazing guests, uh, something you guys haven't talked about before. And so, David, I learned a ton. Uh, so thank you for bringing them on the show. And, of course, our last thank you goes to you, the listening audience. Thank you for tuning in and listening to the Common Area Podcast with David Bodemer. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when David comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. This makes it much easier to share these podcasts with your colleagues. Again, thanks for listening today. For everyone at WMRE, this is Eric Johnson inviting you back in two weeks for all the stories that matter to you, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to the Common Area Podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WMRE or Informa. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only.